Psalm 64, to the choir master, a psalm of David. Hear my voice, O God, in my complaint. Preserve my life from dread of the enemy. Hide me from the secret plots of the wicked, from the throng of evildoers, who wet their tongues like swords, who aim bitter words like arrows, shooting from ambush at the blameless, shooting at him suddenly and without fear. They hold fast to their evil purpose. They talk of laying snares secretly, thinking, who can see them? They search out injustice, saying, we have accomplished a diligent search. From the inward mind and heart of a man are deep. But God shoots his arrow at them. They are wounded suddenly. They are brought to ruin with their own tongues turned against them. All who see them will wag their heads. Then all mankind fears. They tell what God has brought about and ponder what he has done. Let the righteous one rejoice in the Lord and take refuge in him. Let all the upright in heart exalt. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let me pray and we will look at Psalm 64. Father, we thank you for that open invitation that we sort of just walk through, what we call the Lord's Prayer, that you... You call us to pray to you. Jesus, you have made an open door to your life and death. And now, united to you, we have access as a son or daughter would to a father. And then you instruct us in your word how to pray in so many ways in the Psalms, giving us a picture of the full range of human emotion and uncertainties and doubts and fears and all these things that are real human experience. You teach us to bring before you. It's hard to do that, Lord. Um, But we thank you for the invitation. We thank you for the instruction. Help us to do that now through Psalm 64. In Christ's name, amen. Verse one, hear my voice, O God, in my complaint. Preserve my life from the dread of the enemy. We, uh, we try to let the Psalms as we're moving through them, and we've been doing that for 10 or 12 weeks this summer. We have one more week of that, and then we'll move on to our next series. Um, let them determine what the Psalm feels like. When they're up, we're up. When they're down, we're down. Well, uh, this is a complaint, and so we're complaining in some ways. Um, my wife said something to me very disturbing a few weeks ago. We were having a conversation about uh, there's a budget conversation, which is not abnormal, but we're going to talk about this one area of our budget. And she prefaced the conversation by saying, honey, I know you don't like to talk about this, but... And then she proceeded to tiptoe very cautiously and wisely, as she does, into the conversation. But here's the problem with that. She was right. She was right. I don't want to talk about it. And that's a problem. As the husband, the one who loves her, pleasure our lives to each other. And I've responded in such a way over years or months or weeks, I don't know how long it's been, I can't even see it. So that she knows that there's something she has to tiptoe into in a conversation with me. That's not right, guys. It's not right. It's a topic that functionally was off limits or slowly off limits, right? And uh, that's not... A healthy relationship conversationally. So I want to start today by asking you, this is a question, it's hard to answer for ourselves, we can barely see it in ourselves, but I'll put it to you anyway, are there any topics off limits for you? Are there topics that are off limits for you to talk about with someone you care deeply about? 
someone you love can't talk to you about something, or they have to really tiptoe into it, or there'll be all kinds of problems. Could be, could be money, right? It could be if you're a husband and wife, it could be about money. It could be a good friend, it could be husband and wife, it could be an aspect of your health. We don't talk about that. And you respond in such a way that if it's brought up, they're like, okay, we don't talk about that and never will again. Could be some of our habits. Could be our, the way we respond to things. Could be about our anger or about our anxiety. And the way we know we don't talk about anger is we get angry when it's talked about. Could be about our relationship with the in-laws. We don't go there. Could be about that event that happened last February that we don't talk about. We act like it didn't happen. No, we didn't really deal, deal with it. We didn't transact on it. We didn't ask for forgiveness and confess our sin, but we just put it behind our back and acted like it never happened and we will never talk about it again and never address it. We don't talk about that. It's off limits. If you're married, it could be about, we don't talk about our sex life. It's too sensitive, too intimate. Even though we're married, we're not gonna talk about it. Could be, uh, if you're not married, we're not gonna talk about singleness. It's too sensitive, too wrapped up in that idea. We're not going to talk about it. We're not going to talk about it with good friends. Could be about our consumption of food or alcohol or our unwillingness to do the laundry or something. We just don't pull our weight at home. So maybe to put the shoe on the other foot. Are there any topics you are scared to talk about with someone you love, someone close to you? Now this might be, I say might be, I don't know. Could I cause a fight? A diagnostic question this afternoon. If you're married, ask a spouse. Honey, are there any areas that you feel are off limits to talk to me about? Ask a good friend. Because in a healthy, full-orbed relationship, we need to be able to talk about life. Now, we want to talk sensitively, understand with understanding, with a lot of wisdom and patience, and hearing the other person but a healthy relationship means we're talking about all of life. And if we say, yeah, we got a healthy relationship, but actually we don't talk about this, you have to re-examine, do we have a healthy relationship or not? Now, I'm not saying we talk about difficult things all the time. Right? It's embedded in the rest of a relationship. There are other kinds of conversation that we have. But if in the context of communication there are things that are just simply off limits or a mode of conversation that's not sinful that's off limits, I would suggest something is missing. To that end, one of the things we see in Psalm 64, the very first thing we see at the head of this passage in verse one, hear my voice, O God, in my complaint. Preserve my life from the dread of the enemy. The big idea here that we're driving at that, that verse one is threading through here is that humble complaint, humble complaint is a normal mode of communication and health when we are in covenant to the Lord. Complaint to the Lord. So humble complaint to the Lord is a normal mode of communication and health when we're actually in covenant with God. Now that's embedded in all other types of communication with God. Praise, thanksgiving, normal communion with him, conversation with him, meditating on scripture in God's presence, um, supplication, asking for things. But complaint, as the Bible defines it, is a real part of communication. It's not off limits. It's not an off limits type of communication with God. And occasionally we're called to this like this psalm. 
But we probably have to rehab the concept of complaint a little bit to get at that. It's not typically, I don't think, what we call complaining in our time. Complaining tends to be like, it's, it's a word referring to the habit of expressing stuff you don't like. I don't like this. I don't like that. I don't like that. And another thing, and this, and that, is like, okay, stop. Okay, you don't want to be like that. When I'm in a, com- now you might think, Roger, you're kind of a complainer. Okay, I know. It's hard to see it in yourself, right? That's why you need to ask a loved one. But that's something that we train our kids away from, right? If our kids start complaining about stuff, we train them away from that because it makes them miserable. And importantly also, it makes everybody around them miserable. And when we were raising young kids, we've raised five now, our, one of our basic philosophies, just super easy, if it's not a blessing to others, you don't get to do it, right? Uh, you know, if, because complaining all the time is not a blessing to others, you don't get to do it. We know you're doing it because you're a child and you're childish, but we're not going to justify it because you're a child, because one day you won't be a child and you will still be complaining and you'll be miserable and everybody else around. So like, if it's not a blessing to others, you don't get to do it. We're going to train you away from it. I would suggest not just in complaining, but in anything else, if your kids are doing something that's not a blessing to others, then maybe train them away from it because one day they won't be kids. Okay. That complaining, we train the way. We train away when we see it in our own heart, if we can see it. But that's not what this is talking about. That's why verse one, complaint is more like another word we use in English. It's a courtroom word, the word plaintiff. A plaintiff in the, in the court is one who brings a plaint. See, that's clear, right? Everybody knows what a plaint is. What's a plaint? A plaint is an old English word that means a charge or a case. So a plaintiff is one who brings a charge or a case against another who's called the defendant, who's defending themselves against the plaint. The word complaint literally means with plaint or with a charge, with a case. So uh, David is saying here, and training us when appropriate, something like this, Lord, Hear my charge or hear my case against those I perceive doing evil against me or against someone else. I perceive this, it's wrong, it's twisted, it's wicked, and I'm, I'm thinking about it and I'm bringing this case to you, do something about it. We bring this charge to God and we bring it in humility for two reasons. One, because we don't see everything clearly or maybe we always We never see everything clearly. We don't have the omniscient perspective. So we're seeing things from our perspective. So we're a little bit humble when we're so certain that something else is evil. Also, we are completely, we have the capacity to fall into the same evil that we're complaining about even as we're complaining about it. So we must be cautious against that. So we might say a complaint that God invites in this psalm. He's saying, hey, friends, sons, daughters, when you have a complaint, it's sometimes appropriate to bring it to me in prayer. When you perceive that evil or wrong or twistedness is being done against you or in this world, it's appropriate to bring it to me. Now, in the Bible, twisted, wickedness and evil has a sense of twisting away from or destroying God's original good creation. Things are leading to not the way it ought to be. So a complaint is a thought-out charge against this, and that's why it begins here. Hear my voice, O God, in my complaint. Preserve my life from the dread of the enemy. Almost every commentator points out that David begins this by saying, hear my voice. 
which means out loud. I'm speaking out loud to you, God. So right before this, Taylor led us in prayer through the Lord's Prayer. He prayed out loud, then we prayed silently. That is just, that is completely a, uh, an abdication to the reality that Americans don't like to pray out loud. That's why we do that. Because we're sometimes concerned if we ask people to pray out loud, maybe nobody will do it and what will happen? Now, what if we ask everybody to pray out loud all at the same time? It seems cacophonous. You go to South Korea, that's how they always pray all the time. Everybody's praying out loud all the time. That's what this is talking about. David's like, I want you to hear me, Lord. I'm praying out loud to you. So this is just an aside. If you never pray out loud to the Lord, I encourage you to do it and see what happens. Because what happens in part is we use our own senses to remind us that God is actually present. He promises to be present. He is present with us and in us. But sometimes that's hard to lay hold of. When we pray out loud, when we pray out loud, we're using at least three senses, our, our speech, our, our hearing, our, like you can feel the words vibrate in your head a little bit, that feeling, right? So we're using our own senses to call to mind the reality that God is present with us when we pray. So pray out loud. You might have to get by yourself. You can do it in your car if you want to. You can pretend like you're on your phone so people don't think you're weird when you're in the car. Uh, I've actually done that. It's just weird at a stoplight. You know, it's easier to pretend like you're on your phone so people don't think the next person is next to them is nuts. But it is helpful to pray out loud. And David begins... Hear my voice. So I've been just pressed for a second. If you've never prayed out loud by yourself, you're leaving a lot on the table and stuff. Dave, the Psalms encourages to repeatedly. I just I give that to you. Okay. Okay. Here's what he prays: Preserve my life from the dread of the enemy, or preserve me from the fear that the enemy is bringing on. This is a fear that would lead to distrust of you, Lord. And then in verse two, hide me from the secret plans of the wicked. So he says, protect me from their schemes, hide me from these plans, may what they're doing here, may it not work on me, protect me, and preserve me from fear. I don't want to be afraid of this. And down in verse seven, he's really asking for patience until God wipes it away because he's going to say, I know that you will. In this whole Psalm, he doesn't ask for God to please stop the evil. It's interesting. You can't, I mean, some other Psalms do that. The Bible does that. But in prayer's dynamic. There's a lot of different types of prayer. In here, he's just like, preserve me from fearing it and may it not work against me. And I know that you will wipe it away because it's, it's out of line with your character and eventually you will make all things right. I'm just holding on until that day. He actually doesn't ask him to remove the wickedness. Just says, I know that you will. We'll get there. I'm not saying it's wrong to ask God to do that. Just saying that sometimes you don't. So wise complaint from this psalm we see involves at least three things. Put those in your insert there. Examination of the dynamics of evil. Thinking about it. So we bring a case. Humbly, we'll see why. Patience, because God will respond. And confidence that rejoicing is in fact coming. Examination, patience, and confidence. First, examination of the dynamics of evil. That's what we see in sort of verses one through six, a, a forensic investigation, if you will, of evil. As we grow in maturity as followers of Jesus, it is often, it's wise for us to grow in our, our understanding of how evil and sin and wickedness and twistedness works in this world. We don't have to grow. We can remain childish and immature in that understanding. But there is an ongoing invitation in the Bible to understand how that works. In the world, in other people, in the person in the mirror, right? In ourselves. 
um, I put it on the back of your insert several passages we'll refer to, and I'm not going to dive into all of them, but Ephesians 2, I'm not going to read it, just points to these three, three sources and forces of evil in our world that the Bible calls in different ways the world, the flesh, and the devil, right? The, the world or the dynamics of twistedness in our world that are sustained by themselves even if no individual is sustaining it. That's the worldly uh, twistedness. The devil, the accuser, the enemy, the one who stands behind that twistedness, and the flesh is that part of humans that cooperate with the world and the devil. For those in Christ, that doesn't go away until we die. It, we, it can weaken, we can weaken it, but our flesh, as Romans calls it, this part of us that is in rebellion against God. And so if we're unaware of the dynamics of how evil works out there, we will also be unaware of how the dynamics of how evil works in here. So we're not going to read through this and say, ha all those bad people, without saying, and that person in the, in the mirror, right? We are not unlike anybody else, other than if you're a Christian, you're in Christ, but those same dynamics tend to operate in us, and through being in Christ, we're mortifying them, setting them to the side. It is possible for us to sin in the ways we're complaining against. That's why in Psalm 34, David writes, keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. This is given to the covenant people because we can do it. We don't, we can not turn away from evil. We can speak deceit so that we have this encouragement. Turn away from that. And we know this. And I know in my own life that it is rooted every piece of destructive, twisted speech that Roger does. Whether that's a, a subtly, now, I'm old and I'm a pastor. I use words for a living, so it's real subtle in my life, you know? It's not as obvious to me, anyway. <laughs> it's obvious to my wife because she can know. Oh, we don't talk about that. How does she know that? Well, maybe the last time I was short with her about that. Maybe the last time I don't even know how. Maybe it was a little twisting like, well, what did you do in this situation? And maybe a blaming. I don't know. Maybe a hostility. Maybe an ouchiness that I just wasn't going to respond all of that in our life, in Christ, is a result, I think, of forgetting the riches of being in covenant with God. Why do I, why with this little area of our budget, why would I respond uh, hostily to that? Because Roger, in that moment, forgets he's in covenant with the God of the entire universe who holds all things together by the, by the word of his power. And thinks that if I don't manage this, and it's so scary that I can't even look at it, it somehow will fall apart. That's ridiculous. That's simply forgetting that I'm in covenant with the living Lord of the universe. So we may uh, exercise anger toward others as they threaten our vision of the future. We may twist the truth to make ourselves look a little bit better so we can win approval in their eyes because we forget that in covenant with God, the one who made everything and sustains it rejoices over us with singing and quiets us with his love. But we're like, yeah, that's not enough. I also need this neighbor. It's, it's crazy, but it happens when we forget. Sometimes we want to justify ourselves because this, the, the righteousness of Jesus Christ is so full and rich and covers us forever from all eternity isn't quite enough. And I also need to be better than that person to be just, justified. Sometimes I want to be on the right side and so I want to find fault with that other group. It's so silly because the kingdom is coming and we're swept up in it. Okay. We can easily 
engage ourselves in this sort of sin as we forget that we're in covenant with God and that Jesus gives us riches over and over and over again and allows us to use speech as a blessing and not a curse. Nonetheless, let's, let's do a little examination of this type of evil. First of all here, we see it is energized in community. We're going to try to keep the ambit pretty narrow, looking at ourselves so we can see others. But David is perceiving that some people are banding together against him. Now, he was king in the middle of some political deal. You're not that. I'm not that. It probably, he was probably right. Probably a group of people trying to take him down. Groups of, the idea here is that groups of people can't have a multiplying effect on sin. And maybe a warning to us to ask, do the people with whom we surround ourselves increase our propensity to become angry, hostile, critical, self-justifying, doubting, arrogant? What is the effect of being in the groups of people with whom you surround yourself? Are you more Christ-like after that or less so? It's possible to be in community where sin is multiplied. That's even possible in Christian community. Maybe even it's more subtle, right? Because we just assume you're the best, but these things have a way of spinning up. It could be distance community too. A few years ago, I stopped listening to a particular political commentator. I'm not going to say who, but, uh, and it was not because I disagreed with him. And he led me to anger because I disagreed with him. No, it was because I really agreed with him. And about 90, well, 80, when I really agree with somebody, it's like 80%. Like 80% of the things, I'm like, yeah, that's right. Ooh, that's right. Mm. And so I take a 30-minute trip to go meet with someone. I'm listening to this in the car. And by the time I get there, I'm mad. Like nobody else is in the car. Just me and my own flesh. And I'm angry because I've been listening to this particular person. And I realize over time that inflames my flesh to be hostile and cynical and critical and biting and making assumption of other people in different groups of people. It's hard to be like Jesus when I'm listening to this person. Here's an easy solution, Roger. Stop listening to this person. I just had to, right? Um, I'm not going to say who it is because I'm not giving a prescription for you unless this is inflaming your flesh. Then if it is, please, please, we're, we're more likely to enter into destructive speech if that's the case. And that's because this type of evil David's dealing with is speech-driven. Look at verse 3. Those who wet their tongues like swords, who aim bitter words like arrows. The word wet is an old English word to mean sharpen. Sharpen their tongue like a sword, ready to do its destructive work, using bitter, destructive words. So you think about words for a second. Speech. Just the concept of words and speech. This is a gift. It's a beautiful constructive, creative, life-giving gift of God to his world. In fact, think about the, the creation narrative in Genesis 1. What's the phrase that's repeated over and over and over again in creation? And God said. 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 He creates by speaking. All of the goodness of creation was created by speaking. Hebrews 1.3 says Jesus himself right now upholds the universe by the word of his power. So words and speech are 
deep in the Bible story on page one and then on every page, even into the future of how God creates and sustains things. And the, the last, the culminating and God said in Genesis one was this. And God said, let us make man in our own image. Male and female, he created them in his own image. He, he made them. So the creation of the image of God that we talk about, you, all of you bear the image of God, was originally created by God speaking so the image of God is created through speech. Therefore, there are warnings in Scripture against using speech to decreate or destroy the image of God in others. It's all through Scripture. Though actually, Scripture doesn't actually... We talk about the image of God a lot here, right? Because that's the sort of the background, page one reality of the Bible, that you all bear the image of God, even though it's in sin, we're twisted and broken and cracked, we still bear the image of God. The Bible actually doesn't mention the image of God that many times. I don't know if you know that. We talk about it more than the Bible does, which should maybe give us some pause, but image of God in creation in Genesis 1, a couple other times, but there are two main times in scripture where it's spoken about whether warnings are given, dire warnings against attacking the image of God. One of those is in Genesis 9, 9-6, where uh, this is after the flood, where God says, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed for God, for because God made man in his own image. So what this means is, uh, if you murder someone, <laughs> therefore stealing the image of God, destroying the image of God, you then forfeit the right to bear the image of God. Right? So it's a, it's a strong thing to attack the image of God because in God's economy in Genesis 9, he's saying you then forfeit the right to actually bear that image. That's uncomfortable to some of us in the West these days. I didn't write the book, Genesis 9. The other place we have it is James 3, which we looked at a few years ago in our, or a few months ago in our series on James. James writes this, maybe closer to home. No human being can tame the tongue. No kidding, check. It's a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it, we bless our Lord and Father. And with it, we curse people who are made in the image of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, this ought not be so. Speech has this incredible capacity to destroy. And we know that because it's happened to us and we've done it. All of us, I'm sure, all of us had said things. And like when the echo of those words is still in the air, we're like, I wish I hadn't said that. Get back. Right now on Gmail, if you send an email, you got like 30 seconds, you can recall it. I don't know if anybody's ever used that besides me. But once you send it, you're like, nope, unsend. Usually I don't send any emails that are like that because I don't trust myself. But occasionally I'll fire off an email. Boom. Nope, get back. <laughs> right? You can't do that with words. I just wish you could. If there's a, somehow a time delay, even if, you, even, if a person, if, even if you say, I take it back, <laughs> it's hard to unhear words that have been heard. Now, you may forgive, you can say, I'll absorb that, that's fine. But words have such incredible capacity to do destruction, we know that. And I know that every, I know probably every era thinks it's the worst or best in something. I, 
I don't know if we're the worst, but man, speech is an all-time destructive high in our culture, maybe over the last 10 years or so. I don't know if it's the worst time ever, it's the worst time that I'm aware of in my own lifetime, which is stretched on for a few years now. Um, in some ways, the, the digital, we've talked about this, but digital connection, social media tends to bring out the worst of us, no matter what platform it is. And I think just goes into creating this culture of um, ickiness of speech. It's just, there's a sensitivity around speech and a, a, a caution to do it. And, um, I, and I do wonder, friends, if as followers of Jesus, it, it's not appropriate for us to think of being loving dissidents by refusing to participate in the ickiness of speech. I'm saying this in a little bit of a calm window now before another presidential election gets ramped up in our culture. And that's the last thing I'll say about political speech, but all of this would apply there too, right? Um, Maybe it wouldn't be a beautiful testimony to our trust in Christ and his blessing of God's people if we said, we know that you play this game in these dynamics. I'm exempting myself from it. I will bless and not curse. That's hard. The only way we could do that, I think, is to be completely satisfied with our, in our covenant relationship with Jesus and trusting that he's got future in his hand, our future in his hand, because he does. This speech is strategically destructive. Verse four, shooting from ambush at the blameless, shooting at him suddenly and without fear. So ex, expertly aimed at the vulnerable parts from a hidden place. That's what an ambush is. From darkness, unaccountable, Right? The ambush is like, where'd that come from? We don't know, right? It's unaccountable communication. I don't know how many of, what would we say if we were immediately 100% publicly accountable for everything we said in private? Probably less, probably different. David's saying here that something along the lines of, this is a, where's this coming from? This is an unfair accusation. Who's even saying that? These are just whispers, This is just accusation and innuendo pointed at the most vulnerable parts of my life. I don't even know who's saying it. Every time in a news report, you see something like this. From an unnamed source, from an unnamed person close to the source, what you should think about is this, shooting from ambush. How many professional careers have been ruined by an accusation online that just gets repeated? doesn't matter if it's true. It just gets repeated and repeated and repeated because it's interesting. And at the end of the day, there are 10,000 people who have said this one thing that's just an ambush. It may or may not be true. Wow, we live in a, that's the, the downside of the wonderfully connected world in which we live. It's strategically destructive. It's act, well, verse five teaches it's both active and passive together and it's arrogant. Verse five, they hold fast to their evil purpose. They talk of laying snares secretly, thinking who can see them? So it's active, right? They're attacking, but it's also passive. They're laying snares. A snare is a hidden trap that traps an animal. David's here like, I got all kinds of traps for me. I'm walking along and oh, I've stepped in a trap. I didn't even know it was a trap. So all these things are set up. So if I say one thing this way or do one thing, I'm trapped. I didn't even know this was going on. And apparently for all these people laying traps, it means like if he does this one thing, it must mean all these other things too. If he said this, I knew he believed that and he would do that. He did this one thing. Oh, he also is this kind of person or hangs out with these kind of people. 
It's a, that's a trap. That's a snare. It's a secret snare in our mind for other people. Like, we're just listening for that one word. Like, aha, she said that. That means X, Y, and Z about her without asking any clarifying questions. This does happen in church sometimes. There's just this two, two examples. Um, real examples. It doesn't happen very often, at least here. But um, I... I your, your pastors and your elders unapologetically believe in the complete sovereignty of God over everything at all times and in all ways and all purposes. Everything. God is completely sovereign over everything. He's other than us. He's not like us. He's not like a big person. He is completely sovereign over everything. I'll say that without apology. Every day I will die for that reality. Check. Some would hear that and say, well, also, while I know that means you, you uh, believe that people have no freedom, that prayer is useless and evangelism is unnecessary, right? What is that? That's called a mental snare that somebody has for you. All you have to say is the sovereignty of God and say, ah, you don't believe in prayer. And we've heard this. I think a better, a better response would be like, can I ask a clarifying question? Do you think because of it, does that mean you also don't believe in prayer? Right? That would be a better approach, right? It would cause us not to be tempted to say, well, why don't you just take your bad theology home with you, right? So, that's not, so for the record, we believe in the sovereignty of God and the freedom of man and prayer and evangelism, right? There we go. Um, but let's not lay mental traps for each other where we make all these assumptions about people like, ha I've got you now because you said this one thing. I heard in the last year that I, I didn't know this, but I heard this about myself. I, uh, or maybe it was Taylor and I, I can't remember, don't believe in the effects of trauma, because somebody who's not even a member of our church made a comment like, oh, to this other person. First of all, that person's not my spokesperson. Um, and why would, why would you think that? Why wouldn't you just ask a question? For the record, of course we believe in the effects of trauma. <laughs> That's silly. But in, I don't know why this person was inclined to believe this. Maybe, I don't know, she didn't like something else. I don't know, but it was, it's why that inclination was there, but it was affirmed by even the words of someone else that wasn't even me, it wasn't even Taylor. So all I'm th saying here is um, this phrase is super helpful. Can I ask a clarifying question? I'm not quite sure. Can I ask you a question to fo follow up on that? It's super helpful in Christian community. Um, it's an arrogant thing. They say, who can see them? It could be who can see us. We're not sure. Uh, there's the reasons in Hebrew, it's kind of hard to tell the difference between that. So they're either saying, nobody will see our stairs or nobody will see us doing this. We are completely hidden. We don't have to be accountable ever. Verse six, they search out injustice saying, we have accomplished a diligent search for the inward mind and heart of a man are deep. A couple other qualities here that this destructive speech when we're doing it ourselves or with others. It's, it's addictive. That's the idea of searching it out. It's a growing, this one, and this, and this. Especially happens in community, right? Somebody says something, somebody else says something, you're like, yeah, that's right. Yeah, oh yeah. And it's, we're creative in community in bad, destructive ways. It's also, this is very interesting, self-justifying. Go with me on the nerd bit for a second. When it says we have accomplished a diligent search, that word diligent there is the same, same Hebrew root as the word blameless up in verse four. Probably what they're saying is you talk long enough with twisted speech, you begin to say this to yourself. We're on a blameless hunt. We are the blameless ones here. We are saying this because we actually care about that person. I'm complaining about that person to another out of care for them. I'm blameless in here. 
right? I am a, I'm justified in running down this organization to someone who does outside of it because I really care for that organization. I'm seeking its healing. Okay. Um, in, think about your last fight with a good friend or a spouse where you said a hurtful word. When the word is forming on your lips, do you not feel completely justified in saying it in that moment? You're like, I'm the blameless one right here. And what I'm saying is right and true and good. And I love Jesus and I'm saying it because of that. So what's the biblical response? It doesn't matter what if you feel you're blameless if you're using twisted, destructive speech. And I, you know, I wish there was an unsend, but there's not. So again, we're keeping the ambit small on us so we can see the dynamics operating elsewhere. Evil speech in us and others has a way of justifying itself. We think that we're right in the moment almost always or we wouldn't be saying it. Why is this? Well, the dynamics of sin are mysterious. Look at the end of verse six. For the inward mind and heart of a man are deep. David here is not in the depths of like, how do I figure this out? You know, the, what's behind the curtain? He's just like, it's deep. <laughs> I'm moving on. What I'm praying for is that I not be fearful and it not be effective against me. And then there'd be some patience because God will respond. Look at verse seven. But God shoots his arrows at them. They are wounded suddenly. They are brought to ruin with their own tongues turned against them. All who see them will wag their heads. So interestingly, this is a future action. David's anticipating God responding. In the original, it's in a past tense. The prophets do this all the time. Uh, it's called the prophetic perfect. There's something in the future that's so certain that they speak about it in the past. The NIV tries to get at that by saying, but translating it as a present. God shoots his arrow at them as if he's always doing it. Um, I gave this illustration a few months ago, but it still bears repeating. Uh, Robbie Page, who is right here. Robbie, <laughs> sorry, Robbie. Uh, one of our elders in training, love Robbie. He's a friend. Often asked Robbie for some help with tech, right? Because he's also techie. And Robbie will say something like, hey, Robbie, can you do this for me? And he will say, done. He hasn't done it yet. Is he lying to me? What's going on? Done. No, what, what's he communicating is that he's willing to do it, he has ability to do it, and it's within his character to be consistent in doing it. So he's like, done. It's as good as done. It's not done yet, but it's as good as done because it's in line with my willingness, my ability, and my character. What David is praying here is that, God, you responding to evil is in line with your willingness, your ability, your character, and it's in the future, but it's so much in line with who you are, and you don't change. We're going to speak about it as if it's in the past. It's done. Or the ESV translated in the present, you're doing it all the time. You will have a sure response. What is God's sure response against twisted, destructive speech? Here it is. God will respond to evil speech with judgment. God will respond to evil speech with judgment. That's what it says, verse 7. God shoots his arrow at them, they are wounded suddenly. They are brought to ruin. Now, I know when I say the word judgment, it makes some Christians a little nervous in their seats. I get that. Um, they're nervous about judgment talk. In part, I think it's because there's a caricature in the wider culture among 
those sort of not, uh, among those who don't follow Jesus, like that's all Christians ever talk about. Judgment, 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 judgment. I just want to say, I don't think that's the case. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe they do, but I don't know many of them. And Jesus talked about judgment a whole lot. Um, so I think it's a bit of a character. I would say, when I hear that, I would say, can I ask a clarifying question? Who are you talking about? That talks about this all the time. That crazy guy on YouTube? Okay, is that like anybody you know? Really? No? Okay. Well, let's maybe not say it happens all the time. Secondly, we live in an incredibly judgmental culture about speech otherwise. I mean, think about how many celebrities get B-listed because they make one false move with a word. It happens all the time. They get, quote, canceled or whatever if they care about that. Um, they make the slightest speech error and the weight of the world of judgment comes down on them and then many of whom would judge for that would turn around and say, how dare God judge for speech? It just doesn't seem right that God would bring judgment for speech. But it's the world we live in. Um, let's just say it this way. The, the biblical story is about more than judgment. But it's not about less than that. And we need to hear that in our culture. The Bible story is about much more than judgment. But it's not about less than that. God is about far more than judgment, but he's not about less than that. God will judge evil, twisted, destructive speech that destroys his creation and destroys the image of God. How, what kind of God would leave that, would not do that? What kind of God who creates things and calls it good would just say, oh, well, who cares? Let it be destroyed permanently and forever. Let's ask a different way. What kind of parent, if their son or daughter had a life-threatening bacterial infection that could be treated with antibiotics, would say, oh, well, let's let the disease run its course and see what happens. What kind of parent would do that? A bad one. A bad one. One who didn't actually care about their kid. One that couldn't be inconvenienced by taking their kid to the doctor and getting a prescription of antibiotics and saving their life. What kind of God would look at his creation and see sin ravaging it through speech and say, I don't care. Let me just leave that and take its course. A bad God would say that. We don't have a bad God. We have one who is created and said it's very good and who is a one who will judge destructive speech, speech that is destroying the image of God and his creation. How does he do this? We see here it's suddenly it comes quickly, comes swiftly. This is back to Revelation 17 and 18, the fall of Babylon. We saw this a few months ago in our Revelation series and the people standing around saying, how did this happen? It looks so strong and it collapsed. Sometimes we see people that have, I mean, this happens in culture sometimes. A well-known scandal happens and somebody goes from the height of popularity when it's provable to the depths of Lack of popularity immediately. Judgment comes quickly. Like, wow, his or her star faded quickly. Suddenly. With the tools that they use, I'm not going to get into this. There's a nice little literary balance here between verse 3 and 4 and verse 7 and 8 where the destruction of the wicked is with tongues, arrows, shooting, and suddenly, um, and in verse 7 and 8, God responds with shooting, arrow, suddenly, tongue. Right? It's the same thing. The idea is that by our own words, God will bring about judgment. That's what Jesus says to the, to the religious leaders in Matthew 12. Your own words will stand against you in the judgment, for you have called people to do things you haven't done. Or offering judgment against someone is saying, it's a, in a de facto way, I believe in a right and a wrong. 
There's a, a right and a wrong, and you're on the wrong side, but at the same time, you haven't submitted yourself to the right and the wrong, or you've stood in the, in the position of God himself, judging right and wrong. Your own words will judge you. And I don't know what to do with this. I think it would be interesting to explore. They use arrows to shoot at David with many arrows. God responds with an arrow, singular. One little word. I don't know what word it is, but who knows? Um, I'm inclined to think it's what Jesus says on the cross when he says the single Greek word tetelestai, which means in English, it is finished. What's the effect here? Verse nine. Then all mankind fears. They tell what God has brought about and ponder what he has done. If people are paying attention, they should see the little judgments that happen in time against twisted speech as a harbinger of what will come at the end of time, a full judgment. Now, if a couple application points here. On the back, Matthew 5. Matthew 5, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your rewarding is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. It may be that because of following Jesus earnestly and even lovingly with much wisdom and understanding, you may be spoken ill of. Okay, that might be the case. And you may be offering a complaint at some point in your life or in your community or at your workplace to Lord that looks like this. I'm being spoken well of simply because I'm trying not to be an annoying Christian. I'm just following Jesus. I don't know. That might be the case. What we do know from Romans 12, if you go to Romans 12 there, Romans 12, 17, kind of the middle of that passage, repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Even those uh, using wicked speech against you, yes, even those. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God or the response of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. We are free. I say this theoretically, it's harder uh, I'm wired to respond and fight. See, even saying wired to respond is a twisting. It's just sin. I'm wired to respond to this. I like to fight, but that's, that's sin. We don't have to respond, not because there's no response, but because God said, I've got this. Step aside. Just be patient. I will respond. And if we do that, we are a very good company. First Peter 2, Jesus 1 Peter 2, midway through that, verse 23. Oh, verse 22. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he does not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. By his death, we have been covered. We are protected and provided for. Now, you might have deduced a problem in this passage. That God judges twisted speech and the dynamics of evil are not just out there. <laughs> They're in here. They're in us. The person in the mirror. What does he do? Does he just ignore that kind of judgment? No. He judges that speech as well but he steps into human form, takes on real flesh, and takes that judgment for our twisted speech on himself. 
For every time I've been hostile with my kids, twisted language to make myself look better, offered a cynical analysis of another person or imputed motives or ambushed someone every time you've done that and destroyed the image of God, Jesus himself, the true image of God, takes our sin on his shoulders. And there's a little tiny hint of that in this passage. Verse eight again. Those who are judged, they are brought to ruin with their own tongues, turned against them. All who see them will wag their heads. That's a little phrase, wag their heads. It means shaken disbelief or scorn. That shows up a couple times in the scripture. Let me show you where else it shows up in Psalms 22. Psalm 22. This is a psalm Jesus works through on the cross. As he's hanging on the cross, Psalm 22 begins this way, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? If you're familiar with the gospel narratives, that sounds familiar to you. In verse six, but I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me and they wag their heads. They say he trusts in the Lord, let him deliver him. Let him rescue him for he delights in him. That's all the way back in Psalm 22. What's recorded in the gospel is Matthew 27. Jesus is on the cross and it says, and those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the son of God, come down from the cross. This is a picture of Jesus taking on my twisted speech. And yours. I've noticed over the years as we've spoken about the tongue and speech and harshness, a great deal of conviction happens, and that might be appropriate because we have this beautiful gift called speech that God has given us to, to build up and create and, um, and encourage each other with, and we, in our creativity, use it against each other. What do we do? Jesus has taken that on his shoulders. We repent, we ask for help, we receive mercy, we know that our sin is atoned for. And we move forward with Christ in union with him to bless others. All that's left is at the end here, verse 10, confidence. Because rejoicing is coming. Verse 10, let the righteous one rejoice in the Lord and take refuge in him. Let all the upright in heart exalt. The careful reader will see that the the name of God has changed for this last verse. It's moved from Elohim, which means God, it's a fine name, to the covenant name, Lord, Yahweh, in verse 10. Even in the midst of all kinds of evil and twistedness in this world, and even as we see it in ourselves, David's invitation is let the righteous rejoice in the Lord because they are in covenant with him, not because of them, but because of him who's laid hold of him. And so, friends, if you are in Christ, I want to invite you to the table. This is a way with all of our senses, we come and we celebrate again that Christ has laid hold of us, that because of him, he has placed us in covenant with him. And from that position, we can see the worst in us and know that it can't destroy us. We'll be honest about it and then ask God to heal that and use it to bless others. If you're in Christ, I want you to come to the table I want you to come with a sense of freedom, of confession if necessary, and celebration because this is Jesus giving himself to us. Let me pray. I'll invite you.